Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. By the way, it's good to have uh, Arthur David with us. He's going to be teaching our, well, he's going to be showing us some things in Bible class uh, I think that you'll be interested in. A lot of us here, we already know who Arthur David is. He's been an important part of this church for so long. He did uh, lots of wonderful mission work over in Liberia. He's still very actively involved what's going on there. Now he lives in the country of Tennessee, I believe. Is that right? Uh, and I know we've got a couple of Tennessee folks that are in here, and you know that it is it really is another country, uh, especially if you get towards Nashville, and you've got all kind of countries that are in there. Um, but we're so glad that he's here and with us. Well, we're here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And what we find out is... Somebody has been snitching on the Corinthian Christians. I mean, nobody likes a tattletale, but according to verse 18, Paul says, I've been hearing some stuff. I've been hearing about these divisions that are occurring in the community of the church. We don't know who has been telling on them, but we do know this it needed to be done because what they were doing was of a very, very serious nature. Now, for us to really get into this and understand, uh, just understand really what this is about, we have to get past, when I say Lord's Supper, what we commonly think. We commonly think it's something we do when we come in on a Sunday in a church building and we got our little cups and little piece of bread and, and, and it's something that's very solemn and everything else. You've got to get into this first century thing that's happening here. They didn't have church buildings. Church buildings were not around at that particular time. The elements, the the bread and the cup, was taken in the midst of a meal. Otherwise, folks, this text makes no sense to us whatsoever. So context is very important. Historical setting is very important if we're going to understand the issues. And, And the problem that we have with that, besides the fact I forgot my clicker, but the, the problem that we, we have with that is that over the years, people have used our text for all kinds of things because we've taken it out of context. We've said it's proof that you can't have fellowship halls. Yes, verse 22, people have used that for that purpose. Uh, people have said that, that, that only the perfectly righteous can partake of communion because you can't take it in an unworthy manner. Or it proves that the Lord's Supper is to be taken in a solemn way because of what it says in verse 28. It's something that only you just kind of like you and God is there. I've even had people say that this text proves that it's wrong to have a uh, a meal in the midst of the Lord's Supper, and we're going to talk about all of that. But what we really know so far is this. The Corinthians totally botched this sacred moment. They completely are botching it. In fact, he makes a direct contrast to what he said last week when he began this section on the, their Christian uh, worship practices. And, and when he starts on this with the, the head coverings, he says, there's some things I commend you about. But now he comes here about the Lord's Supper, and he says, I do not commend you. I do not commend you. Now, one of the positives about what the Corinthians were doing is that we have this history. And if they hadn't have been messing up the way they were, then Paul probably would never have written about this very thing, and we really would not have had any recollection of how the first century churches were partaking of the Lord's Supper. But thankfully, we do. 
Now, again, they're doing some things that they shouldn't be doing. And that's what we're here to find out. But we're going to find out a little bit more about this practice and what was going on. And what does it say to us here today? Well, we begin here, a table divided. We go into the text. Let's just start reading together. Verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, it's for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper? It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Whew. Paul's hot. And there are these divisions that have occurred, are occurring in the church, and they are over socio or, or economic lines, okay? Over economic lines. Now, archaeological studies in this particular time, we have an idea of what these houses look like, these Roman villas. And I don't know what is going on with our picture up here today, but um, it's kind of blurred out. But here is this little area. It's known as the triclinium. I think that's how you say it. And, and that's kind of like the place where you could get nine people in there. They would be reclined for a dinner party. You've probably seen some pictures. I'll show one here in a little bit. But once you get past nine people, that they can't fit in there anymore. So the rest of the people had to come out here into the atrium. And the atrium uh, would see, or it would host another 20, 30 people that would have been out in that area. So what was happening is that there were these wealthy folks and the wealthy people are the ones who had the houses that were big enough to host the Lord's Supper. And so they would invite their wealthy friends, the people who are of higher status, and they would have them come earlier. And they were enjoying this great little meal in the triclinium. And then the others were getting there late. Why are they getting there late? Well, we know one thing about the Corinthian church. And by the way, this is in Pompeii. I did want to show you this. When Missy and I went to... Uh, went over to Italy and Greece, we went to Pompeii. And Pompeii, it was, if you know, it was destroyed in 79 AD. So these are homes in the first century. And this is what a triclinium would have looked like. You can see this is where people would have been laid out and there'd been food and servants and all this kind of stuff. And this would have been more the atrium areas. And you see these villas everywhere you go. So this kind of gives you a little bit more of an idea. But what I want to show you is in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he says, listen, there's not many in the Corinthian church who are of noble status. There's not many of you who are wealthy that, that have this, you know, that, that you're important in society, as they say. So the smaller room worked really well for them. <laughs> and maybe the reason that they were coming in late is because they had to work. Because in the Roman Empire, they didn't have an, an a legalized day off like we have enjoyed here in the United States through the years. Whatever the case, it seems that the upper class, they were coming early, they were bringing this great food. They had their choice of food, choice of drink. They were gorging themselves, on, just, just pigging out on the food. Some of them were getting drunk, is what it says in the text. Those who came later, though, and they're out here in the atrium, 
they got the leftovers at best. Paul says that people, they were leaving hungry. So, so they were totally missing out. So think of it maybe like this uh, as to what was happening. Think of it like you're, you get on an airplane and you got first class. First class, you know, better accommodations, better food, better service. And then you got the people who are stuffed back there in coach. And you might get a little bag of peanuts at best, right? And so kind of think of it in, in a little bit in those terms, although that's a very crude way. And it's still hard for us to imagine how all of this was taking place and how all of this was working. But what we see is that the Lord's Supper, um, while this, this might have been, as far as the meals go, while this might have been a normal part of the Corinthian society, when it comes down to the Lord's Supper, it is to be a time for the community and the body of Christ. He doesn't say you can't have these kind of parties at your homes. He doesn't say you can't invite your friends and do these kinds of things. But he says that when the Lord's Supper is involved within the community of Christ, he says you cannot begin to separate yourselves in such a way that the poor are being shamed while the rich are, are gorging out on these things and you're not waiting for them because you don't see them as important. Paul repeats a phrase, actually a word, five times in our text. He says, when you come together. You say, wait a second, that's four words. In the Greek, that's one word. But it's a really interesting word because it has a couple of meanings. One of them is to assemble. In other words, you know, you gather around. And then the other meaning of the word is to be unified. And he's making a play on these words. And he's saying, listen, when you come together, you're not coming together. You see that? He says you're not unified. And so Paul says it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Now, it's difficult, again, for us to understand this connection between communion and the needs of the poor. And it's probably because most of us, we did not grow up going to a church maybe that most of the people were poor. Or, or probably none of us have ever gone to a church where that the Lord's Supper was, in, uh, was, was within a common meal. So again, it's hard for us to get into this, but we're going to get into the tension. I uh, promise you that. One thing I did find interesting was verse 19. And Paul says it's necessary to have these factions. Because this is how we find out who's truly genuine. In other words, someone who has proven that they are not fake, they are not counterfeit in the faith, because they have been tested. I just thought that was fascinating. It sounds like Jesus' parable of the soils, doesn't it? Sounds like something that the Apostle John later on said about those who were part of their, their community of people, and then they left. And he says, listen, they never were one of us. They never were truly genuine. Factions bring distress in the community. It does for mature believers, and it, it really is uncomfortable for those who are new Christians. And I think most importantly, it brings shame upon the name of Christ. Paul isn't saying that it's okay to have divisions, but he is saying that it is inevitable. But we cannot have the community divided whether it be over social class, over opinions, not even over doctrinal issues. 
We cannot be divided over politics and race and gender and stereotypes. We don't have to agree on everything, and we will not. But we must be a united group of people. In fact, we, if you are a part of this church, somebody says, I want to come and be a part of this church family, one of the things you have to do is agree to our covenant. Now, this is our thing. It's all based on Scripture. But we say there are some things that we believe are important for you to agree upon, for you to be a part of this church family. And one of those is, number one, is actually I will protect the unity of my church family. We think that's very important. If somebody's not willing to sign off on that, then we just don't think that you're ready to be a part of this church community because we believe it's about acting in love and mercy and kindness. It's about respecting those in leadership positions. All of those things that can create divisions and divides within a church. So he says, listen, look at Corinth. He says they're divided. They've divided the table. But a second thing he does, he talks about the table of the Lord. So we now go into the text. And we read beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul addresses the problem that is happening in Corinth by reminding the Christians of the traditions of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. This was something he says that I had been taught and that I have delivered to you. And we can read that and we think maybe Jesus himself went to Paul and said these things, but more than likely he's saying that Jesus is the source because these traditions were things that they passed down. They retold the story over and over again. There were no written gospels at this particular time, although this goes very closely to the gospel of Luke and what we read there about that moment. Retelling the story of Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, that was the core of Christianity. That's why it's very important that we continue to retell the story of Jesus over and over. And so he's saying, based on your actions, you need to hear the story again. I've told you the story before, but you missed it. He uses the word remembrance. You see that in the text. He uses it twice. And that's a very key word because he links us back to the very meal that Jesus institutes where he institutes the Lord's Supper. And that's Passover, because Passover was a time of remembrance. It was a time for Israel to recall God's deliverance from bondage. And so here in the Lord's Supper, it is a time for us to remember. It is a memorial for us to remember our deliverance by the very costly, um, the costly death of Christ, the, the radical grace of Jesus, of God. It means that we give ourselves for others in remembrance 
of the one who gave himself for us. And that is the opposite of what was happening in Corinth. So he says, you need to hear the story again. Because we are to mimic Jesus in our own lives. Paul links the Lord's Supper with the New Covenant. Did you see that? Jesus, in, initi- uh, um, he uh, initiated this New Covenant through his death. It is something that the prophets had been anticipating would finally come, this New Covenant. And the word new here, it simply means different. It's a different kind of covenant. Jeremiah even says, it is different than the covenant that had been made to Moses, to Abraham. It's different in that the former is written in stone, but the one that he now has given, this new one, it is written on the hearts of humanity by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When he writes to the Corinthians later on, he tells them this very thing. It involves, according to Jeremiah, as he talked about it, it involves a forgiveness of sin. It involves the spiritual transformation that would finally come. It involves the fulfillment of promises that God had made to Israel long ago. He says it is new. It is different. Because what is now happening is the nations are being offered into the blessings of God as Israel had been offered. It is better it has, it's a better covenant. It has better promises, according to uh, the writer of Hebrews. To be in covenant relationship with God is to be in, in, belong to a covenant people who are bound together. And we are bound by responsibilities. We're bound by responsibilities that we have to God and that we have to each other. It is the, is the first two aspects of what we say. If people say, who are we? What is our theme here at this church? The very first two things, it just, it's, it's exactly what we tell you. You've got to love God and you have to love others. You can't leave one or the other off. Both are bound to each other. The Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that was disregarding the covenant structure. And so they're acting like Jesus' death had not changed the relationships that, that they had before them. Paul sees the Lord's Supper as a rehearsal of the kind of life that we who are in Christ are to live out. By doing so, he says that our life becomes a proclamation. Do you see that? Proclaim. We proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ by what happens in the Lord's Supper as we bond together over this meal. And he says it should be something that's infectious, that other people want, that they're not getting out here in society. But then we notice one more thing, a table of judgment. All right, buckle up. Here we go, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, 
That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the things, I will give directions when I come. Other things. So this is pretty shocking. There are people getting sick. There are people who are dying. Because they are taking the Lord's Supper, he says, in an unworthy manner. Now, we got to pull back here for a second, because that's one of those misused passages. And, and, it, and we've made people believe that the only ones who can really partake of the Lord's Supper who are those who have perfect righteousness. That is not what's being taught here. You've got to stick with context. And what he's saying is to eat the meal unworthily, it means that you eat it in a way that provokes division. His call for self-examination is that we are to consider our actions. Our actions at the supper and how they are affecting others within the body of Christ. He says they are eating of the supper of the Lord without discerning the body. And that's not a common terminology. We don't use that often, do we? Oh, I discern the body today. Oh, no, we don't use that. But what that simply means is to recognize that the community is the one body of Christ. Paul already made that point back in chapter 10. When we get into chapter 12, he's going to further develop this idea as well. They are bringing judgment upon themselves, and it was already being felt because they were getting sick, some of them, and some had even died. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, does that still happen today? That is a great discussion for more wild talk. <laughs> On Thursday night, 7 o'clock. The purpose, though, he says, is, is to correct. The Lord loves those that he disciplines and he's trying to save them he says i'm trying to save you for the judgment that is for unbelievers that's coming he says because what you're doing here it is an absolute insult to christ and to one another paul here is not telling them listen don't take the the bread and the cup in the midst of a meal we miss the end if we believe that because he says no here's what i'm telling you wait for one another you're not waiting for each other he says i want you to wait for one another all this talk about judgment though and about people getting sick and about people dying it may make you very concerned as we get ready to partake the lord's supper here in a second but i don't want you to feel that way because the supper it is it is something that is of grace and not condemnation it's not about sinless perfection, because if that were the case, there's not anybody in here that could take, this, take these elements. But the Lord's Supper does call us to love each other. And that's the call. That's where they were messing up. Those who take the bread and the cup unworthily are those who have divided the body of Christ by ignoring the poorer Christians within the community of Christ. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need to kind of think back to the words of Jesus that he gave during this great Passover meal 
The bread symbolizes the bodily death of Christ in order to redeem, to make amends for our sins. He became the Passover lamb. When we eat the bread, we should recall his death. And we should act in a way that is consistent with Christ's self-giving and grace on our behalf. The cup was probably the third of four cups that were passed at the Passover. It was during that time that, that Exodus 6 and verse 6 would have been read, where he says, I will redeem you. Paul calls it the cup instead of the wine. And you may wonder, why does he refer to it as the cup? Because it brings back the connotation of the Old Testament cup of suffering, the cup of wrath for sinners. And what it's showing is that Christ accepted the wrath that we deserved. And he made it possible for us to have peace with God. But the Lord's Supper is not just about looking backwards on the crucifixion of Jesus because we now live here on this side of the resurrection and even more so he tells us that we are to, to eat of the bread and of the cup until he comes there's something that's coming and that is we look forward to the heavenly banquet that we will one day enjoy together with the lamb we celebrate together and we give thanks to the one who saved us and who is coming again. Let us uh, now, as we get ready to partake together, and if you were unable to get one of these, you're visiting with us, we're sorry you can get there on the back table back there, um, and we will do a prayer for, for both the bread and of the juice at this moment. This is a time of unity it's a time of unity not only with Christ, it's a time where we are unified with one another of all people, of all economic lines, all social lines, and everything else. And so we, we come together in this moment. You will bow with me. Father, we come to you this day and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your Son, we thank you, Father, that you have given you, through your grace, you have saved us. We know, Father, that we cannot save ourselves. And so, Father, you have washed us clean. You have redeemed us, even though we didn't deserve it. And, Father, you have brought us together within this body of people to continue to do life with, to love, to watch over, to care for, and Father, may we all find a true bond with all of those who are part of, of this family here. And so, Father, we just pray that your Son comes and he joins us in this moment as we partake of this, this together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.